Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Tuesday, July 14th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. What it takes to be an ice cream scientist. How to trick your brain to remember almost anything. What ants can teach us about handling epidemics. And the wine moms who just want to bring a little joy to their communities. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. July is National Ice Cream Month here in the U.S., as instituted by President Ronald Reagan in 1984. This upcoming Sunday, the 19th, is National Ice Cream Day, and I'll be doing a roundup later in the week of all the best deals that you can take advantage of that day if you want to celebrate with some cheap ice cream or special offers. But today, I want to talk about one of the people who helps make all of the delicious ice cream we eat possible. Dr. Maya Warren, a real-life ice cream scientist. First, what is an ice cream scientist? Well, in Dr. Warren's case, it means that she is the Senior Director for International Research and Development for Coldstone Creamery. Her job consists of two main parts. First, the not-so-glamorous but super-important part, establishing dairies and building ice cream mixes for all the countries around the world that Coldstone Creamery operates in. Between taxes, importation laws, various conflicts, and the high price of milk fat, it isn't always so straightforward. So Dr. Warren helps countries figure it out in the most affordable way. The more exciting part of her job, though, is creating new ice cream flavors, specifically for Cold Stone's international market. Quoting an interview she did in Mental Floss, I look at a local ingredient and say, I see people in this country eating a lot of blank. Why don't we turn that into ice cream? How would people feel about that? I try to get these places to realize that ice cream is so much more than a scoop. In the States, we have ice cream bars, ice cream floats, ice cream sandwiches, but many countries don't see ice cream like that. So getting these places to come on board with different ideas and platforms to grow their business is a big part of my job. End quote. And she's pretty creative with the flavors she comes up with. Here's how she describes one of her favorite flavors that she's developed. Honey cornbread and blackberry jam. Quote, Ice cream starts out with a white base that's full of milk fat and sugar and non-fat dry milk. It's plain. It's simple. And for this flavor, I thought, why don't I throw cornbread in ice cream mix? I put in some honey because that's a good sweetener and a little sea salt because salt elevates taste, especially in sweeter desserts. And thought, why don't I use blackberry jam? When you're eating it, you feel the gritty texture of cornbread, which is quite interesting. You get that pop of the berry flavor. There's a complexity to the flavors, which is what I enjoy about what you can do with ice cream. End quote. Her out-of-the-box ideas and confidence in execution comes from her background in chemistry, and more specifically, food science. A lifelong lover of science, she originally got her chemistry degree in undergrad so that she could teach high school, but then discovered food science and decided to get her PhD in food science with a concentration in ice cream, because it's what she's the most passionate about. As she says, it makes her heart flutter. And she advises young people, you should choose whatever career path makes your heart flutter. I suppose we shouldn't be shocked to hear such sickeningly sweet platitudes coming from someone whose literal job is making ice cream. And it's not just all throwing fun ingredients into some ice cream and seeing what happens. Dr. Warren emphasizes that there's a ton of chemistry, microbiology, and flavor science that goes into working with what she says is one of the most complex foods on Earth. Quote, it's a solid, it's a gas, and it's also a liquid all in one. So the solid phase comes in via the ice crystals and partially coalesced fat globules. 
The gas phase comes in via the air cells. Ice cream usually ranges from 27 to 30% overrun, which is the measurement of aeration in ice cream. You also have your liquid base. There's a semi-liquid component to ice cream that we don't see, but there's a bit of liquid in there. People don't think about ice crystals and air cells when they think about ice cream. They really don't think about partially coalesced fat globules. But it's really fun to connect the science of ice cream to the common knowledge people have about this product they eat so much. End quote. So, yeah, ice cream can actually be pretty complex stuff, which makes Dr. Warren a pretty impressive person. But she doesn't just work as the senior director for international R&D at Coldstone. She's also a public speaker and budding influencer. She hosts a series every Sunday on her Instagram called Ice Cream Sundays, in which she instructs people on how to make creative ice cream recipes at home during quarantine. Also, she just so happened to win Amazing Race Season 5 while writing her dissertation. No big deal. Dr. Maya Warren will be doing her usual Sunday live show on Instagram this Sunday for International Ice Cream Day, so link in the show notes if you want to tune in and learn a bit more about making no-churn at-home ice cream. Remember when we used to actually memorize phone numbers? We had so many numbers in our heads, ready to go, no problem. I know I used to do that, but I can barely imagine how I did it. Having this auxiliary brain in my pocket with instant access to all the world's answers has definitely made my memory worse. And if you feel similarly, four-time USA memory champion Nelson Dellis and psychological scientist Julia Shaw recently rounded up some tips in Wired for getting your brain to remember almost anything. The first step is to visualize. Come up with strong sensory images to associate with what you're trying to remember. For example, if you're trying to remember the seven wonders of the world, you can either picture the actual wonder itself or something a bit more like a mnemonic. Like for Petra, which you might not be able to immediately visualize in your head, you might focus on the pet part of Petra and visualize your own pet. Memory champion Dellis, who memorized the 10,000 first digits of pi, says that, quoting Wired, the first five digits of pi after the decimal point are represented by Sam Neill wearing an Iron Man suit. It's just the way it goes, he says. The second patch is represented by an image of his friend dressed as the emperor from the movie Gladiator with his thumb down. End quote. Those might sound completely random, but psychological scientist Julia Shaw says, quote, Images that are weird, and maybe gross or emotional, are sticky. When looking at the brain, researchers found that the amygdala, a part of the brain that is important for processing emotion, encourages other parts of the brain to store memories. End quote. So the weirder and more emotional, the better. The next step for memorizing might sound familiar to fans of the BBC's Sherlock series, you need to put the images that you came up with in a location, creating a memory palace. Returning to the Seven Wonders of the World example, Dellis says that he would put each of the images he came up with, associated with each wonder, along a route in his house. So you could have one of those images in the entryway, one in the living room, one cooking up dinner in the kitchen. Again, going back to the amygdala, the weirder, the more saturated with emotion, the better. Though the memory palace strategy is specifically triggering the occipitoparietal part of the brain. Shaw says, quote, This means that the technique helps to bring in more parts of the brain that are usually dedicated to other senses. The parietal lobe is responsible for navigation, and the occipital lobe is related to seeing images. End quote. 
So you're visualizing the images you associated with what you're trying to remember and going on a journey. When Delos memorized 10,000 digits of pi, he placed those digits in chunks along his entire neighborhood. He would then walk through the neighborhood in his mind to recall the digits. And dividing them into chunks is another strategy. Break things up. I mean, certainly, if you are memorizing 10,000 digits of pi, you're not going to do it all in one go. And Della says that when he did it, each five-digit chunk of pi got its own image and location. And as you are doing all of this, another important part, which is a bit easier to understand than some of these others, if not to execute, is to pay attention and encourage yourself. Having a little mantra to encourage yourself to recall what you're memorizing can help, both in keeping focus and in keeping motivated. Remember what you want to do and why you're doing it. And the final step is to review what you've created. A lot over and over again. Shaw points out, quote, most memories never make it into your long-term memory. That's why it's so important to repeat the information to transform a short-term memory into a long-term memory, end quote. And that is probably why I have so much trouble with phone numbers these days. I mean, years ago, there were at least a handful I had to dial all the time. That repetition pushed them into my long-term memory, and indeed, I still remember a few of those. They just don't really call the people I need them to anymore. But these days, I mean, try as I might to memorize even just a few emergency numbers, the fact that I never have to type them into a phone makes me forget. So maybe I'll come up with some images to go along with the phone numbers, throw them into my memory palace, and then force myself to actually dial those numbers instead of hitting the contact card in my phone for a while. Get those into my long-term memory. It's worth a shot. It turns out that ants are really good at social distancing, and isolating, and keeping themselves clean. Basically, everything that we're all scrambling to do effectively during this pandemic, ants have been kicking butt at for millennia. And while we can't replicate everything ants do because, you know, we are a bit different from them as humans, maybe there is one or two things that we can glean from how they conduct themselves. After all, despite how many of them live in such close quarters, studies show that epidemics and contagious disease almost never spread through ant colonies in the wild. So, they must be doing something right. So, when some type of pathogen does enter their environment, ants naturally socially distance. Quoting Discover Magazine, A 2018 study published in Science found that when colonies of garden ants were exposed to a pathogen, they changed their behavior in response. The ants were already divided into two groups, workers that take care of the brood inside the nest and those that forage outside. After researchers exposed ants in 11 colonies to infectious spores, the ants in each colony began to interact less with ants from the other groups and more with one another. The groups effectively became more separate, which prevented the spread of the spores. And what's more, after researchers performed a separate experiment with 11 more colonies, the ants protected what the study calls high-value individuals, the queen and younger worker ants, who always survived and had less exposure to the spores. And the more numerous ants that had low levels of exposure to the spores showed a heightened immune response to the infection, much like humans do with a vaccine. End quote. Ants are also really good at keeping themselves and each other clean. Another 2018 study, this one from the Institute of Science and Technology Austria, found that ants actually changed their hygiene habits based on a nestmate's level of infection. 
Ants have a few different sanitary practices. One is called allo-grooming, or the practice of grooming both themselves and their nest mate before entering the nest. Allo-grooming includes physically removing potentially infectious particles from their nest mate's body. And if more than one pathogen is present on their nest mate's body, the other ant increases their allo-grooming regimen, using higher amounts of their antimicrobial poison, and then proceeding to reduce physical contact afterwards. Quoting again, Ants also use chemicals to prevent entry of a pathogen before the nest has even been established. Many ant species produce a poisonous substance within their venom gland called formic acid. They usually use it alone to fight off predators or disinfect their nest. Much like humans moving into a clean apartment, ants use this poisonous formic acid to sanitize a new living area before they move in. End quote. And in addition to venoms that they produce themselves, some species of ants make use of the natural world around them. Wood ants, for example, use tree resin to protect their nestmates and colony, usually combining it with their formic acid to create a super-powerful antifungal solution. So thanks to genetics and years of evolution, all of this comes second nature to ants. But even if we can't replicate all of it as humans, we after all don't naturally produce any type of formic acid, we can look to the ants as role models for cleanliness, hygiene, and disease prevention. And scientists can use them to study the effects of some of these strategies we have in common, like social distancing. Natalie Stroymit, a researcher who studies ants at the University of Bristol and who conducted the first study on how ants change their movement patterns in response to a pathogen, is currently using ants to study super spreaders, hopefully creating a model that can be used in the future to predict and rapidly respond to human super spreaders. So even though I'm not so amped about the couple of ant bites I got on my ankle while gardening over the weekend, I guess I am grateful to ants for teaching us some cool lessons about disease prevention. Ending today with some people who just wanted to bring a little joy to their neighborhood and have now started a movement across the nation. Enter the Wine Moms or as they call themselves, the Sisterhood of the Traveling Wine. It started with just one woman who thought that it would be a nice idea to leave bottles of wine on the doorsteps of friends and neighbors. After recruiting some other friends to join in and then starting a Facebook group, they have now amassed over 78,000 members online with active members in 10 states. The North Carolina chapter currently boasts 51,000 members with another 3,000 on the wait list. They've also started a spin-off called the Brotherhood of Booze and Beer and are working on a non-alcoholic kids version. So what exactly is it? How does it work? Well, the self-titled Wine Fairies gather addresses of anyone who would like wine delivered as well as their preferences for types of wine, and then a wine fairy, one of the members dressed up in a tutu, wings, and other fairy gear, drops the wine on the recipient's doorstep, rings the doorbell, and then runs away as if they were never there. Hence the fairy aspect. Although I don't quite get the point of dressing up if you're never supposed to be seen. But then again, far be it for me to take away someone's excuse to wear a fun costume. Anyways, it's already starting to grow a bit beyond just wine. Some chapters put together entire gift baskets, and they're happy to come up with non-alcoholic gifts as well. Raleigh chapter founder Kara Rindell said, quote, It's all about bringing others happiness and making new relationships. It starts off as a random act of kindness to a stranger and becomes a friendship with the neighbor you didn't know you had. It's called the Sisterhood of the Traveling Wine, but the group is co-ed, and it isn't just about wine. We want to eventually include children all the way up to grandparents, end quote. Rindell said that the movement is taking off so much that cruise lines have reached out trying to get them to do a cruise for the Sisterhood of Traveling Wine. 
And she notes, they have every intention to continue with the gift-giving fun after the coronavirus crisis is over because, she says, quote, we always need to be spreading kindness and cheer. I've mentioned it a few times on the show, but I remain fascinated by the U.S. weekend box office numbers. With so many movie theaters closed and most new movies not coming out, the box office has been dominated by older classic films being played primarily at drive-in theaters. And this past weekend was no different. Fresh off its 40th anniversary, The Empire Strikes Back topped the box office with $644,000. Yeah, and that's a lot these days. Others in the top 10 include some indies and a few newer re-releases like Black Panther and Inside Out, but also Jurassic Park, the original one, Goonies, Gremlins, and Jaws. It's just so weird and wild. What a time to be alive. Anyways, that is it for today. I hope you all have a good rest of your day, and I will talk to you tomorrow. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a and b with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824.